Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Force podcast. My name is Captain Richard Byrne, and I'd like to welcome you to our special podcast series In Conversation with the Irish Air Corps. This series was produced by the Defence Force Public Relations Branch and the Irish Air Corps Public Relations team. A special thanks to Corporal Michael Whelan, the curator of the Irish Air Corps Museum, and Noel Grothier for editing and producing the oral history recordings. The Irish Air Corps have provided an outstanding service to the Irish state and its people for the past 100 years. In this, the fifth and final episode, our oral history takes us through some of the most difficult and challenging missions that crews from the Irish Air Corps have undertaken. Your unit is the most fully decorated unit in the Defence Force and That's has right. been for quite a long time. Well, that all stemmed from the time we were on SAR. Mm. And SAR, SAR, is, SAR was a great thing we did. It was a, a dedicated role and then the technicians used to do it. Yeah. People just did it SAR and then we got more professional and we turned it into a, we made specific people that weren't technicians. We tried to separate the technicians and the SAR people. We didn't want you doing two jobs. We yeah. wanted totally SAR, dedicated people. We became very professional. But we won, we won a lot of DCMs, yes, during that time. And then we had 1999, which was the, we had many highs, but that was the biggest low in probably my career. Yeah. A lot of people's career in Baldano. It was one of those nights where the Swiss cheese just all lined up. Everything lined up on the day and I think we've learned lessons from it, but sometimes I think we haven't. But I can't think about Sarah anymore without thinking about that. Yeah. I, I can't I know we did a lot of good things, but the only thing it brings me back to is that. Yeah. In nineteen ninety nine we had a base in Waterford and we decided we were going to they wanted to up it to uh, full, to give it better coverage, because we only had an alouette down there, so we didn't do anything at night. And we sent it down on a certain day, and the crew were up early that morning because it was new we were sending down. There was the GOC was down there, there was the OCD unit. They all went down, they had a photo shoot. Everything was going swimmingly. We were just taking over this new helicopter. But around 12 o'clock that night, a quarter to 12, they got a phone call seeking to do something. Not many people know this, but they actually could have stood down on their way to the job because it was said, it's okay, they're all right, they're safe, it's just to find them, we just have to find them. But the crew, being the first night, probably got a bit excited and carried on. So they said, no, we're going to do the job. They got to the airport. There's no support in the airport at that hour of the night. There's no tower, There's no. but our lads are there. They were asked, they only had 600 kg in it because that was the standard what do you do do you want more fuel yeah. no we're just going out we locate them that was planned so the job was go out locate them they located the boat fine the lifeboat said okay we're making our way there can you stay on site for a while there's a young child you should never tell SAR crew what's yeah. on the boat you should never tell them anything like that this is intramar yeah. yeah so they said okay we'll stay on site so they stayed on site but they'd never taken on extra fuel so right. the fuel was going down but it was a lovely night everything was clear until they tried to get back in and when they tried to get back in the field was fogged in so they couldn't get in so they said oh we go around again we'll try it around this way or we come in this way tried it a couple of times couldn't get in then they said okay we better divert but didn't have the fuel then to divert so they said okay what are we going to do here try it again didn't get in 
The lads on the ground could hear them, but they couldn't get down through the fog. Could hear them going overhead. They could hear them yeah. hovering overhead because they had to have rules that you can't descend through. So they went to this place, a pub, where we knew there was a car parking. It's always empty. We'll go land there. Wasn't there a quiz night on that night or something? And the car park was full. So they couldn't get in there either. Now they couldn't divert. They couldn't get in. So they tried it again. Couldn't get in. Went back out. Tried to come in through the beach. Over the beach. Come in over the sand dunes. Get in. And didn't make it. Unfortunately, under said, and they had made the decision, I believe, go back out. We're going to put it on the beach. Or we're going to ditch. Whatever we're going to do. But as they were turning, one of the blades hit a sand dune. The radar wouldn't pick up the sand dune yeah. or corner. That was it. But just everything that could go wrong, probably. And it wasn't a big thing. No one was actually doing anything wrong, or. And it had an awful effect on the air corps, especially on number three. We, we were in Baldana about a week. Oh, I hear about a week when the dolphin crashed. I still remember the the whole organisational shock and that throughout the whole of the air corps was was huge at the time and then of course we were involved in the funerals then uh we did the i was on the firing party for the for the two pilots um and we were we were involved in the ceremonies in the church here as well so yeah you've lost people and you you mm. You continue to go out and do the job, not just you, but the rest of the guys and girls involved. It's not bravado or like that. It's just, it's your job. I mean, you do it, and when you lose someone, you aim to do it better because of them. You know, you're doing it for them, and you kind of make a little packed with yourself that you're going to be as good as you can possibly be in their honour right. you know um, th their sacrifice isn't going to be wasted by us yeah. not taking what's happened and making it a, a positive so you take stock of the risks anyway and, and you still do it like, you know. the risks are there all the time I was at home here working in the garden on reserve and sometime in the afternoon, the phone rang from Baldonnell to say that there was a fella stuck on the side of, of that mountain just above the lake up in Kevin's bed, up halfway up the mountain up in Kevin's bed. And the civil defence had made several efforts, the mountain rescue people had made several efforts to get at him and couldn't. So I stuck my shovel in the garden and got into my uniform and out to Baldonnell. The reserve crew, the rest of them had arrived at that time. I think it was uh, Sergeant Dunn, the sergeant at that time, and uh, Corporal Brady. And we set off for Glenda Lock. Uh, we landed in the car park up in Glenda Lock to talk to the civil defence people to find out where the fellow was, and eventually took one of them on board to find out where he was. He was about... Uh, 200 feet above the water on almost a vertical part of the mountain. And when we saw him, he appeared to be wedged between the mountain itself and a small tree that was growing out. We naturally couldn't carry out a rescue with the civilian on board. We were full of fuel and the rescue was out of ground effect. 
So we dropped the civil defence fellow, came back and uh, went in to have a closer look. And I discovered when I went in close by that the downdrafts were pretty hectic. The forecast wind was about 40, 45 knots, which uh, under normal circumstances wouldn't be bad. But the wind is from the south. And when the gusts were coming in and when I got in near it, I just couldn't hold the helicopter. The gusts were coming strong enough, actually, to blow the helicopter down. And uh, at first we thought we would have to leave him there. But we went off and we flew around and um, the three of us spoke about it and what we might do. So I think to, to Sergeant Dunn said, let's go back and observe. Let's watch the gusts and see is there a frequency. And we went back and hovered reasonably close. We could see our man inside and he looked to have a broken foot. All right, we could see his foot sort of hanging out over the side of the tree. We went back and we watched the, the ghost. You, you could see it quite easily because the wind was blowing down the mountain. You could see the, the small trees blowing in the wind. And then when the ghost decreased, branches would come back up again. So the winch operator and winchman, they timed them for about 10 minutes. And there was a frequency. There was about a minute, minute and a half, sometimes two minutes about them. And we discussed it and they said, yeah, that's from where he was, that's provided, you know, good steady hover and getting him out in time that we would do it. So we watched it and as soon as the ghost finished, as soon as the trees started to straighten out, we went in. We had the winchman down about 10 feet going in and fortunately and put him right on to where your man was and he grabbed him. We didn't put him in a stretcher or anything and uh, snatched him off and got him into the helicopter and uh, took him away very stupid fellows, typical of what, to what these guys do. This was a, a, an Englishman, and he was climbing uh, Kevin's bed in a pair of Wellingtons, which was typical. And the other thing, I remember the fellow never wrote to say thanks. The weather was forecast to be bad, and um, we got a call to say that there were two boys trapped on the Powers Court waterfall. I remember as we approached Powers Court waterfall, the downdrafts were horrendous. I mean, the wind was blowing over the waterfall at 44 knots. Now that's, 35 knots is a gale force wind. So it was very, very breezy. I couldn't see the survivors at all. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna land at the foot of the waterfall where I could see the guard of the car. And fortunately the guards had a pair of binoculars and they were able to say to me, you see the tree halfway up the waterfall there? He's at the base of that. And I said, there's two of them. He said, no, one of them has tried to climb down and he's fallen and was killed. I said to Terry Kelly, was there any way that we could get rid of the, the, the fuel that we had on board? There was no fuel jettison on the Alouette threes in those days. Yeah. Because of the weight, yeah. I felt that if we get rid of all that fuel, yeah. it would make the airplane much lighter and okay. we might be able to do it. Now, I'd have to be honest and say, I have never been so scared in all my life. Uh, maybe until later on in the, the rescue. Yeah. But at that stage, as we were trying to get in and thinking, you can't get this wrong. Like, you know, I mean, this guy, this poor chap at the tree um, needs us. Yeah. And it wouldn't look good for the Air Corps to, to fail him, no matter what the explanation we could give, like, yeah. you know. So Terry said, if you can get a field, I think I might be able to open a drain nut in the bottom of the fuel tank. We landed in a, a farmer's field 
and we Terry opens rain nut with his bare hands. We drained uh, probably the bones of 70 gallons, 80 gallons of, of fuel into a field um, for which the minister had to pay the farmer afterwards for the damage done to his field. But Terry tightened up the, the, the drain nut with his bare hands again and we did a, a check to see that there was no sign of obvious leaks from the hover and we went back into to the, the tree in, in, which was well into the um, the valley and the tree as I said was halfway up the waterfall so we were able we, the power was there to do the, the rescue but it was getting it was very very close to limits again and that was just with three of us on board so Terry was pattering me and what's that mean I'm just explaining that he, he, pattering is where because of where the, the pilot is sitting he can't see directly under him mm -hmm. he's looking forward so he has no concept of what's happening beneath the aeroplane and the a verbal description which we describe as patter is given by the winch operator and it's, it's a standard patter that all crewmen learn as part of their basic course and we all speak the same language the units are the same when he's telling you forward three forward two forward one steady steady yeah. you know that's the same no matter who the winch operator is okay. and he was telling me okay we're overhead the the survivor the 90 feet of cable is out but he's not in contact with the survivor so start coming down start descending so i started descending vertically but i became aware of branches out of the corner of my eye because as you remember the Alouette 3 was all glass yeah. down to the floor and all perspex and I said to Terry Terry I can see branches growing up the side of the airplane and Terry just said I oh, know it's okay you can keep coming down we kept coming down we fabulous trust in each other like, yeah. you know they got about I suppose a third of the way up the, the, the cabin maybe and Terry said okay steady steady he's in contact with the survivor so very quickly John got the uh, stop around the survivor and uh, gave the thumbs up and Terry just said up gently yeah. which was the sign to, to, for the aircraft to take the weight of the two survivors off the ground and um, we had to lift vertically and then back off from the cliff while winching in the, the uh, survivor and the winchman. Yeah. Now I was relieved when Terry said they're at the door, they're inboard yeah, up, up, and, up and around like you know and that means you can go ahead and fly off. So we flew to St. Vincent's Hospital. So I came off duty on the Monday and I was resting off on the Tuesday because I was on duty for the bank holiday weekend. On Wednesday morning, a letter arrived to Heliflight from the mother of the chap that I'd saved, the mother also of the chap who died, yeah. thanking me for saving her son. And telling me that the chap who had died was a gifted mathematician who was due to start in Oxford or Cambridge that wow. September, a month later. And I thought, imagine a woman sitting down to write that letter yeah. the two days after her son, or three days after her son had been killed. And I thought, that letter meant so much to me that she would actually go to that trouble. But um, So subsequently after that, uh, the three of us were awarded the DSM. In terms of other major jobs, the, the tanker Betelgeuse, when it blew up at Bantry, that was one of the most horrific 
jobs I'd ever been on. Um, the, the tanker was offloading fuel at the jetty in the oil terminal at Whiddy Island and a spark ignited the vapour and the whole ship blew up. And I think there was 52 or 54 killed and we were down there. I was the first crew down and from the Midlands we could see the plume of smoke down over Bantry. Um, so the only time I've ever seen concrete on fire. Um, the ship split in half and people that were blown overboard had been blown into a pool of oil, heavy oil. And when we lifted them out of the water, the straps would stick to them. Straps? The, the rescue strap, yeah. yeah. Okay. And if you put them in a stretcher, they stuck to the stretcher. So every evening we were using Bantry Airfield as a temporary morgue, the hangar, and we would land there and offload whatever bodies we'd picked up. Mm. And um, we'd have to prise the straps off so we could use them again. And each evening we would soak the straps and the hoist hook in fuel to try and dissolve yeah. unstick them mm. but a lot of the gear was just binned you couldn't use it again certainly we were using army canvas stretchers yeah. and the bodies were sticking to the stretchers so they just cut the handles off to, to, to move the bodies from the stretchers but um, we were there and staying overnight in Collins barracks and within a very short time we realized the scale of it so two more aircraft arrived down uh, I remember Mick Dunican and Tony Cronin were on one crew and can't remember who the other crew were but we wound up in Collins Barracks that night after shifting yeah. as many bodies as we could and uh, we went over to the mess and we were having no we went to to get something to eat in the dining hall mm -hmm. and then we said I need a pint so we walked out the main gate and down the road and into the nearest pub and we were sat in the pub having a pint about quarter to nine and we were sipping away chatting and just reflecting on what we'd seen that day and next minute the nine o'clock news came on on RTE and of course there was footage of us working all day yeah. and the locals in the pub were looking at the news now we were still in our flying gear yeah, we yeah. didn't have civvies with us yeah. and they were looking across and then they were looking at the telly and I said hold on that's them there. Well, within minutes, pints started arriving over. The locals buying us pints. You spoke about being involved in the Air, La the Air India disaster, which occurred on the 23rd of June 1985. My, my memory is that, that as I say, the, the silly side of it was we came out of, Charlie and myself came out of Mass and wondered what the Air Corps Land Rover was doing there. Because my memory is that was a Sunday. And um, they said, look, need you. Uh, there's been an air accident. They need to need a crew. So I went in. We were given rough position. Uh, by which days? By 1985, we were gone from DR Nav. We had uh, Global 500, a positioning system that generally allowed you get plus or minus a mile probably from where. But um, so we uh, we came in, loaded up and away we went. Um, my memory is arriving at the scene 
We were coming in, descending into the area, and the Nimrod descended in over us. And literally... Just an REF Nimrod. Yeah. yeah. And as we were going in, called to, we called to him to say that we, we could see something uh, on the surface, you know, uh, ahead a couple of miles. Um, so he zoomed past us for that. Um, and then he quick, we quick, he quickly established an area that he would patrol, and we were given a patrol area. How did you feel about that? Like, what were you, were you apprehensive about going out and what you were going to see? Like, no, um, because you just at at a time and place, you're just asked to go and do something, and you do it. Um, and, and I don't think you 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 don't outthink it. But you knew what was had happened. Well, we knew there was an aircraft missing, yes. 1981, I think, we got the Puma, wasn't it? The big snow arrived in 82. That's right. And that was a godsend at that stage. I mean, that was perfect when it was here at the time. That was a really, really good time. I remember the big snow came. I was in Rat Mines at the time, living in an apartment, and it came out on the radio that any of the heli guys that were flyers or technicians if they could try and get their way into Baldona but nothing could move so we rang up and we arranged a lot of us arranged that when the aircraft came into a hospital somewhere near us we'd meet them there so I knew there was one coming into Crumlin Hospital so I went to Crumlin Hospital and the next one came in I got on it and came in here to Baldona we were in here for about I think it was six days at that time getting up every morning off we go fly around Wicklow, fly wherever we had to go down around Offaly, taking people out, feeding cattle, getting fodder up the hills, doing all that. That's what we did. Back here in the evening, we'd DI all the aircraft, get them all ready again. Jim Dunn, do you remember Jim yeah, Dunn? Yeah. He was a corporal at the time. Jim would be here, he'd have a big coddle or something. He'd get food somewhere from during the day and we had our little own tandoori room, we called it out here. It's where Quality Assurance is now. And he'd have a big pot of stew or a big pot of coddle or something on. We delve into that, down to the mess, a few pints, bed, up again, do it all right. the next day. We drank the mess dry that week, I think. How did you get from Ratmines to Cross? I walked. You walked? Yeah. Mm. yeah. That must have been a little slog. It was a bit of a slog because yeah. the store was pretty, it was pretty heavy that time, but I was young. I was yeah. allowed to do it, but put on the clothes, packed a little bag. Knew I'd probably be here for two or three days. Didn't yeah. realise I'd be here for six or seven. Because the base was snowed in then as well. You couldn't move. Yeah, in the there, yeah. Everything getting in was in yeah. chopper. A lot of people. Everyone had to just row in at the yeah. time when, yeah. and it was a lot of very tired, but very, it was very fulfilling. Like yeah. afterwards, you know, we had a good laugh about it. But um, that I'd say was the best comradeship I've ever seen in the aircraft on that occasion. That winter was the big snow as we call it and that aircraft earned its keep now I was at home in Coolock and um, got snowed in I got into my car and tried driving got stuck in a drift and had to get a jeep to tow me out I drove home and I rang the base look I tried getting in not a hope if you want me I'm here whatever we can do about an hour later um, I got a phone call, John, is there any big open areas near you? I says, well, there's football fields beside Northside Shopping Centre. Can you be there in 20 minutes? And yeah. So I got me bag, hoofed it up to um, Northside, dressed like Frosty the Snowman. And um, next minute, a gazelle came in and landed 
I hopped in and they took me off to Baldonnet. And about eight days later, when we'd everything was done, they flew me back home again. <laughs> but for the days that we were in there, from first light to last light, um, we had the Puma and usually two or three or sometimes four Alouettes and basically flew them non-stop in and out. Um, initially it was recovery missions of people stranded in the mountains, mm. uh, people who needed dialysis, landing in farms and uh, we blew the roof of a shed down because it was buried under snow and you couldn't see it was an actual shed and um, I remember landing and going to look for an old man who was in a house and hadn't been seen for days and his daughter was worried about him. So Tim Cronin was the guard sergeant in Roundwood and um, he told us where to go. So we landed in the field and um, I walked over in snow up to my hips looking for this house and there was a bit of a gradient so I went up to have a look around and I was looking around and as I there was something square and it was the chimney. I was up on the roof of the bloody house. It was buried under snow. So I came back down and I walked around to the front. And then I could see like a tunnel going into this mound. So I went in the tunnel. And it was the back door of the house. And there was a half door. And he was able to open the bottom half of the, the door. And he would crawl in and out. But he was lying in a bed in this cottage with blankets and coats over him and there was no fire. The water was dribbling down the walls and uh, we begged him to come out and he wouldn't refuse to move. So I said, well, there's nothing we can do. So we flew back down to um, Roundwood and the daughter says, take me up. So Tim Cronin and himself flew back up in the aircraft with us, landed, brought them in and she walked in and she says, whatever his name was, Mike, get out of that bed. Well, he upped like a shot and out. Yeah. And we got him down off the mountain. <laughs> but we spent the seven or eight days just doing that morning, noon and night. Mm -hmm. After we got the people sorted, we were then delivering food. Um, villages around Wicklow and Kildare and Carlow, we were dropping loads of food. Yeah. We dropped a tonne and a half of food into Piedmont Hospital over here. They were totally cut off. And all we could do was hover over the front lawn and drop it out onto the snow in the front lawn. But we picked the food up from the Garda headquarters in the Phoenix Park. Right. And when we landed in there, the park, the, 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 the car park was coated in ice. And the cars had been moved away to create a space for us to land. Right. And there was a high ace van with the food that we were to bring parked over and of course when we landed as we descended our downdraft hit the van and blew it across the ice into a line of parked cars yeah. so it was <laughs> crazy but that puma earned its keep yeah. um in in those times we've had we we have had, we've had great times in this place uh sure well, we were 800 to over 850 personnel here uh baldonna will expose you to so many different emotions, the happy, happiest and the saddest. And, and, and uh, of, of all the funerals I've done in my 27 years as a priest, and I've built, I've buried whole families out in Africa, victims of AIDS and victims of crime and uh, whatever. Uh, 
the saddest, the saddest funeral, the most difficult funeral I have ever done was uh, the occasion when we lost Derek Furness and David Jevons. We obviously had the tragic event of uh, Fox 265 that crashed. So that was uh, my classmate David Jevons and the chief line instructor at the time, Captain Derek Furness. Okay, that was your class, yeah? Yeah, that was my class, yeah. So that was, we, we got commissioned in uh, December 2009, this happened in October 2009, so it was right at the end of the training. Uh, David was, uh, and I'm not just saying this, he was definitely the strongest pilot, the strongest cadet, and then Captain Derek Furness, extremely um, experienced yeah. and, and obviously well liked around the place. Um, they went out on a what's called a... Um, uh, high low high uh, mission where you, you go high level and then drop low level and back to high level so it was from Dublin over to Galway in the evening and it was it was supposed to be a day and tonight flight so three aircraft went out I was supposed to be the fourth aircraft but my instructor wasn't feeling well so our flight was cancelled right. um, the first two aircrafts got into Galway safely for fuel and the third aircraft was was uh, Furness and Jevons and um, they obviously crashed in, in County Galway then Okay, involved them. That was a fatal crash. That was a fatal crash. Yeah, so they they got um, into high ground in bad weather, um, and they just got disorientation through uh, kind of a high G turn. So mm -hmm. it's um, it's where you, you don't know um, up or down essentially, and uh, they they hit the mountain then. Yeah. The only other bit of amusement I had in that area was in Ross Lair, an RAF plane had landed there. It was it was a battle. The fellow flying was a Pole in the Polish Air Force and he couldn't speak English. He was arrested, of course, and he brought up to the police station and the army were told and the soldiers came down to take him away. And of course, in those days, we wore cold scuttle helmets like the Germans and he nearly exploded. He thought he was in Germany when he saw these fellows. Of course, he wasn't. He looked after extremely well. But apparently, he was training in Scotland near Kilpatrick, up at Paisley, that area. And he was lost in London and Waterford. And he was pretty cleverly landed because the whole area was staked with railway sleepers, you know. But uh, I was sent for by the boss and told to take a tanker and a car. And a Rolls Royce engineer we had, a wonderful character, by the name of George Barton. I suppose he's long gone now. A genius with the Rolls Royce engine, of which we had a lot to see in those days, in the earlier days. I'd never seen one of these airplanes before, and it was much bigger than anything I'd flown or been in. It was a single-engine monoplane with a retractable undercarriage and a variable pitch air screw. These I got from the aero engineer, Dick Sullivan, gave me some notes on the back of an envelope, scrolling speeds and what this he was supposed to do, you see. So I put those in the pocket of the car, actually, in the glove compartment of the staff car, and off we went. And we were about halfway down our side, Kilkenny was out, and the staff car broke down. And I just transferred into the tanker. We just put the tanker in the staff car. We went on. And we arrived down as, as uh, tomorrow. Booked in at the hotel and went down and looked at the airplane. And George said, my God, this old engine's in a terrible heap altogether. Filthy, dirty. And whoever, after about an hour, we all wandered up and it went. And it was okay, so we filled the aircraft with fuel, and I said, okay, we'll go off in the morning. Went up and spent the night in the hotel, and went down in the morning, and uh, we started up, and it was great. She ran well, I ran her up, and everything was great. And I said to George, come on, hop in the rear, and we'll go. My God, see, I'm not getting on that joke, so I said, you can go on your own. So I did. 
But one thing I'd forgotten left in the car was my helmet. And of course, and no radio in this thing. I had my ordinary army cap and I put the chin strap under my chin and opened up the throttle and rode off down the field. At the end of the field, the rear strand of marshes down there. There's all sort of a bog behind the, the strand down there. And uh, well, about 50 or 60, 100 feet off the ground, the edge had just bumped, died out. I mean, I said, my God, this is it. There's only the bog in front. But she picked up again. She just gave me a fright and woke me up. But at the same time, with the cockpit hood open, my hat was sucked out, out and my chin strap caught me under the neck, and I was nearly strangled. Nearly pulled the head off. I got it down on the floor anyway, and went round, and uh, I said, things a bit heavy and awkward, and I thought this was an aeroplane you could do anything with. I, I didn't find it that way, and uh, slowly climbed up to about 1,800 feet, flying around the town. And then there's a lever there which said undercarriage. So I pulled that. And the big gauge on the hand shot around the red, dangerous. I took my hand off her very smartly, I can tell you, and ploughed around. And she was getting hotter and hotter. And I said, this thing's going to continue to get hotter with that undercarriage hanging out of us. So I tried everything, but no, nothing available. And I pushed that lever three or four times, but it hopped up to red. And I, was, I said, the heck with that. And I said, I'd fly home. So I just headed home. And about an hour or so later, I landed. Someone came to Aircourt quarters and fell down but this time my face was brick red, both in embarrassment and heat. I hadn't brought my parachute from the Olympics, I remember this now, I left that in the car with my helmet, you see, and, and an old sort of cushion under me. Because I think if I had a parachute with me, I'd walked out and left her. She was getting so hot, I thought she'd just engine would blow up or something. But she landed anyway, nicest landing I, I ever did. She smoothly went in, and the lads climbed up on the wings and said, terrific ground, and I taxied into the hangars, and there was the boss, Colonel Quinn. And he got up and congratulated me. And I climbed out. And just at that moment, my gladiators, I was the flight commander for the gladiator, fighter unit, off they went roaring into the sky. So I said to the boss, where are my lads going? Well, it's the interesting thing, you were flying up the country in that RAF, man. There was a German coming up behind you. But he's gone, and he's free. We don't know where he is. I'm going off look from one of some type. God, I, I had the RAF rounders on me, you see, and I'd been easy target with a red face and, and no parachute. I'd been to a bit of game. I've been doing this close to a year now, and there was one on my very first shift um, that we got a call from Athlone down to um, uh, Wexford. And what was happening is that um, a young guy who was still in college was after overtaking a car, uh, but I think he got he got clipped. I don't know the ins and outs of it, but he ended up upside down in a field. And um, we got a phone call. As I said, we, we, uh, so road traffic accident, we brought the patient, um, a young guy from Wexford to Cork Hospital, and then we went back to Athlone. And uh, we heard that he was in a bad way. You know, he, he had... Uh, certain impacts on his head and whatnot so we were thinking geez you know if this guy stays alive it, it's going to be something pretty serious or he, he might have life-changing conditions yeah. at, at the end of it so about three months ago not even two three months ago i was down in athlone with common and bonner actually and uh, we got a phone call and uh, i could overhear him talking to someone on the phone and he was like yeah that was us yeah no problem we're more than happy to anything you want we'd love to da 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 and i was thinking oh must have been someone that we lifted or something recently or or a while back but it was actually the mother of the patient that we uh, brought and um, 
from Wexford to, to Cork and she just wanted to ring up and when she found out apparently she had called she was after calling the local guard station to try and get her number she she called I don't know how many numbers in the defence forces to eventually try and get the direct number for Athlone base but eventually she got it she even tried calling the coast guard and all this type of stuff and she just could not get it but eventually as I said she, she got the number and uh, this was the lady on the phone and the second chief uh, Common Bonner said that the second she knew that she was talking to someone who works in our works with uh, yeah. works with that helicopter she broke down crying and she said that I was told by the doctors that if he didn't get here in the time that he got here he'd have serious brain uh, brain damage and he'd probably still be in a, in a wheelchair and all that type of stuff so you kind of look at that and just, and they, they've been invited up now to uh, meet myself and Commandant O'Reilly who was at the crew on the day and um, I suppose just get show them around the Baldonnell and just yeah. show the, the face bef behind the service you know that type of way. So as a crew we don't actually know what we're going to or what, what we're being tasked to uh, in case it, it uh, affects our, our judgments when it comes to, to making a go or no go decision right. based on weather. With Covid uh, hitting us I suppose last March it was a big change uh, on, on the way we've done things uh, there were so many unknowns in terms of what the virus was how it affected people how long it was going to be here for um, and how we'd done operations uh, within the Air Corps as a whole really because we we really worked together in kind of confined spaces and close areas such as cockpits and aircraft and we are dealing with people all the time so from different organisations whether it's you know, the air ambulance stuff, firefighting, lifting patients, meeting firemen, you know, the stuff with the with the army, with the special forces, whoever, whoever it is, we're, we're constantly meeting people um, and working quite closely with them. So when the pandemic came, we kind of had to have a look at it and, and see how we were, uh, see what was going on. Really. And I remember on EES, they were very conscious about keeping the service going because because of the number of calls that we do every day and the, the patients and, and, and generally responding to the worst, uh, the worst of the worst, really, in terms of what people are facing, like so the worst accidents, the strokes, the medical stuff, you know, people really are um, in a bad way if a helicopter's gone. Um, so it was important to keep that service going. And, and I know the people in number three uh, and in the ambulance service were very conscious of that. So the plan was that we were going to end up going into pods. So these pods were basically the six, say the minimum six. So it was the two technicians, the two pilots, um, the uh, the Air Corps crewman in the back, and then the HSC advanced paramedic. The six of us would pod together. And what that meant then was that we were reducing our number of contacts um, so that if we went back to Baldonnell, that if we got sick, that we wouldn't take anything back to Baldonnell, that it would just affect the six of us. So if we landed into a call and someone had COVID or we didn't know they had COVID um, and we ended up getting sick, that I suppose at least it was only maybe taking the six of us out of the picture for a while and not the whole unit or the whole Air Corps because realistically like, the thing was so contagious at the time. Um, so I remember the boss asking for volunteers to go down to that loan um, and it was a bit unusual in that people didn't know what they were facing or what the potential outcomes were going to be like um, because we were lifting people you know in the back of the aircraft the uh, stuff obviously the PPE and that was 
everyone was trying to get PP and they weren't sure if the PP was actually protecting you at the time, you know, because it was all so unknown. Like, uh, I'll never forget the road driving over Tatlone. It was so quiet. Drive across the country, whether I went up the M1 motorway up to Dublin and should have crossed Tatlone that way, but the road would be literally quiet. Um, and the amount of uh, birds that used to sit on the road was phenomenal, like, because it was something that you don't normally see. Maybe very early in the morning you might see a couple of birds sitting on the road, but literally the 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 roads had kind of turned in, turned into a bit of a nature reserve or something. But because uh, you actually had to slow down because there were so many of them uh, on the roads. Um, so lots of wildlife and lots of animals. You also found that you know even if you weren't driving anywhere and you're listening, the, it was so quiet because there's no traffic noises or anything. But um, yeah, there was there was definitely fears. There was there was elevated um, stress there. But but I have to say, like uh, the briefs we had in the mornings, the chat through things, everybody was looking out for each other, and 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 it was really really good. Like and I can't, uh, you know, you can't really speak highly enough. It's only when you see kind of that and and you realise that the organisation is really full of really good people. Like um, so no, it's great. Um. It was the the type of calls then got got very interesting as well because we're kind of used to the the regular type of call I suppose on EES like and that could be a STEMI or a, or a heart attack um, or a stroke or a car crash or whatever but because the country was on a real hard lockdown there weren't many people travelling about um, so you didn't really see many RTCs or car crashes and you didn't really see you know that type of uh, thing where you didn't see there was a lot less crime as well there wasn't any assaults or you know that type of stuff um, but the one thing we did see was a huge increase in farming accidents um, and not necessarily to do with the actual farmers but it was more their, their family or, or their children How do you feel about your role as an AS an EAS crewman responding to all this stuff over that period of time? Um I enjoy the like because there's not too many people have the head for it, you know, like and you'd like to think, you know, that look I'm not stupid, like if I wasn't doing it someone else would do it, but it's a very rewarding job. You know, um it's something I don't know sometimes I felt a bit selfish that maybe I should have taken this back seat because of the young family now. It was good, like it was definitely saw the how the use of the aircraft came and that it, I don't know, like we don't get a lot of publicity about it, but it's, it didn't matter what it was. There could have been a, a plague on, and AES would still go on. Like we were told that was not to, that was not to stop until the last man was standing. We were going to keep the AES machine going. And I think that's a, like a credit. I don't think I've ever had a job where I had to ring lads and tell them to stay at home. It's a, it's something that we should be very proud of. And like even capturing on it, it's the one job when you tell people to stay at home, they're disappointed. Mm. You know, with people tripping over to do um, EES shifts and that the way it was worked out that everyone was in agreement that if we all got it, we'd, we'd just keep the air ambulance going. So I think it's a testament to the, to, to the type of character we have and it's something that I don't think people, people don't get to see that. That, you know, if someone got sick, there was someone down within an hour like or an hour and a half, just, just that's how important it is. But that's how much it means to it all. You know, so. In December 63, we went off to attempt our first rescue mission. I remember a French boat, the Emirons, 
was missing off the west coast around the Iron Islands or north of the Iron Islands. And we spent an hour and a half or so looking for the boat. Didn't find it. And of course, at that time, we had no fuel out on the coast. We returned to Clifton and landed in the ball alley, which is right down on the beach. And I remember walking up to the town. Our refueler was on the way, but it had been a couple of hours before it arrived. So we knew that uh, the, one of the great things about the Alouette 3 was that it literally could burn anything. Uh, Puccine included, I think, we tried. But what we were looking for was paraffin. And I'd hoped that somebody in Clifton, this was 1963, uh, that somebody would have paraffin. But we went up to the local garage there and asked him, had he any paraffin? And he said, no. He said, check with the parish priest. He, I think he used the paraffin. We checked, no paraffin. So we said, right, we'll have uh, more fuel. He said, how much do you want? I said, about 90, 100 gallons. Which shocked him a little bit. I don't think he had any one go. He had sold 100 gallons of, of petrol to anybody. But we had to improvise with filters. He produced some of his wife's nylon socks. And we filtered the fuel from his pump into a 45-gallon drum, which he had. And we got it on, on some sort of a, a trolley, I forget what. Wheeled it down to the ball alley. And again, with similar filtering, we ton dishes, etc., and buckets, we got it into the Alouette 3 to continue the search for the boat. We got back to Renmore Barracks in Galway sometime later that evening to find that the boat had been safely in harbour many hours before that. For more information on the Irish Air Corps, check out our social media channels and our website, military.ie. The Irish Defence Force podcast will be back soon with another episode. Until then, thanks for listening and stay safe.